Our scripture reading this evening is from Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, and we'll read the first 10 verses. Hear the word of God as it comes to us this evening. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation, Revelation 20, which is the most controversial chapter in the book of Revelation introduces us to the final section of this marvelous and comforting book. In some ways, the book of Revelation is like a piece of great music. If you listen to a great piece of classical music, you can often pick out certain themes that get repeated Throughout the piece of music, sometimes the theme is at first vaguely suggested, hinted at. But as you listen, as it progresses, the themes become more obvious. And they keep reoccurring until eventually all the different themes are taken up into a final movement, a great finale. The excitement rises and everything comes to an end with a tremendous crescendo. That's what we see. In Revelation 20 through 22, the whole book 
is brought to a crescendo in these last three chapters. The last movement, the grand finale of the Spirit of God, the history of ages, taking up all the themes of the book, is about to descend upon us. And that is really what the millennium is all about, the 1,000 years. It's a summing up of all these matters. And therefore, it serves as the beginning of the final movement of the great symphony of the book of Revelation. And so tonight, we limit ourselves to the first 10 verses of this remarkable, unique chapter, Revelation 20, 1 through 10. I'll read again at this time only verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. With God's help, our theme this evening is simply the millennium. We want to look at the millennium in three points. First, the binding of Satan. Second, the reign of the saints. And third, the loosing of Satan. The millennium. And I'll first give an introduction to various millennial views, and then we'll look at the binding of Satan, verses 1 through 3, the reign of the saints, 4 through 6, the loosing of Satan, 7 through 10. To get the most out of the sermon this evening, we need to present to you some of the major millennial views Millennium meaning a thousand years, and all three paragraphs of our text tonight have these words in them, a thousand years. So it behooves us to consider the three major schools of thought with regard to the millennium, and then we'll leave that behind and we'll expound the text for the remainder of the message. The three major positions that are advocated by even Reformed and evangelical people and all have been considered historically to be within the pale of Reformed orthodoxy are what we call premillennialism, postmillennialism, and ah millennialism. The premillennialists, first of all, believe that Christ is going to come again first, hence pre. And then after that, after that he has come, there's going to be a millennial reign of exactly 1,000 years on earth. And this premillennial view holds then that Christ will return before he will institute this golden age of peace. And that golden age of peace will last until a final Rebellion and then a judgment day. Well, it seems to us that there are several problems with with this view when we compare Scripture with Scripture. Let me just give you a few of them very briefly. First, premillennialism 
tends to view God's kingdom as primarily physical and national, while Scripture, and especially the rest of the book of Revelation, views it primarily as spiritual and worldwide, much as the New Testament views other Old Testament prophetical terms, such as the seed of Abraham, or the tabernacle of David, or Jerusalem, in symbolic terms. Secondly, premillennialism tends to view Christ's kingdom as yet to come, rather than already being present. While Scripture testifies repeatedly that it is already present in New Testament times, even in the life of Jesus. Third, premillennialism tends to separate major events of eschatology by many years, up to a thousand years. While Scripture, especially Matthew 13, sees these events of the last times as transpiring in very rapid succession. And finally, premillennialism teaches that Christ will return to earth physically a thousand years before the end of the world. But Acts 3, 20 and 21, and several other texts, teach that Christ will be in heaven until the end of time. The second view, postmillennialism, teaches that there is to be a reign of a thousand years, a golden age period, in which the church will enjoy after which Christ will return to judge and to raise the dead. In other words, postmillennialism says the entire world is gradually going to be one for Christ through its conversion to the gospel. And during this time, sin and conflict will gradually be defeated, and righteousness and peace will increasingly reign throughout the world. And there'll be a golden age of success in missions and in transforming society. Even political leaders will be impacted for good. And that's why it's called post-millennialism, because the golden age will come first, and Christ will come at the end, post, after it's reached its peak. Well, like the premillennial view, this view also errs in picturing God's kingdom as primarily physical rather than spiritual. And as something that will only begin in the future rather than having already been inaugurated. Postmillennialism also has a couple of other additional problems. I'll mention just two. First, it views the last years of this world too optimistically. It's okay to be an optimistic millennial. That's my own position. But this is... It, a supreme optimism that seems to ignore, in this golden age of peace, some of the texts that Jesus speaks about, and Paul, that the last days will also be times of unbelief, Luke 18, self-centeredness, 2 Timothy 3, worldliness, Matthew 24, worshiping of the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2, and great tribulation and persecution, Matthew 24. And secondly, postmillennialism tends to view the present age as sort of smoothly transitioning into the coming age. But Scripture presents 
a great catastrophe, a tremendous intervention of God, a passing away of the old heavens and earth, and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew 24 and 2 Peter 3. So we adhere more, at least most Reformed people adhere more, ourselves included, to the third view, which is called amillennialism. The amillennialist holds that the millennium does not refer to a physical kingdom in the future, but symbolizes the spiritual kingdom of God present now. Present now in the church's missionary advance and heavenly reign, even as it suffers persecution and waits for Christ's return and the judgment day. Now, it's unfortunate that this movement is called, or this belief is called amillennialism, because a in Latin means no, as if, as if these people did not believe in the millennium. Well, that's not true, because every Christian believes in the millennium. And so others have suggested, perhaps, perhaps rightly so, that this view should be called inaugurated millennialism, because the millennium has already begun. And so inaugurated, or amillennialism, believes that the millennium is not to be understood literally of an exact period of a thousand years, because none of the numbers throughout the entire book of Revelation are to be taken up literally as an exact number, but they're a symbolic description of a full period. 10 times 10 times 10 equals 1,000, which is a number of fullness, a symbolic description of the entire gospel age until Christ returns on the clouds. And the reason why we feel this is the best view is, is, is I'll just mention three or four points here, is, is for these reasons. First, the New Testament teaches that God's promises to Israel have already come true in a spiritual international kingdom. And they will yet be fulfilled in ultimate glory and perhaps we hope and we pray and we trust, Romans 11, there'll be revival in Israel before the end, but not a nationalistic earthly reign from Israel. We believe that based on texts like Hebrews 12 and Luke 17 and Matthew 12. But secondly, Scripture indicates that Christ's coming in glory the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked and the judgment day and the end of this age will all take place together in history, back to back as it were, almost simultaneously, not dispersed over a thousand years. That's implicit in Matthew 13, Matthew 16, Matthew 24, John 5, and Acts 24. A third Revelation is a book of symbolic visions. We've been seeing that all the way through the book. Both the numbers, such as 1,000, and its images, such as binding with a chain here and sealing in a pit, images used elsewhere in the book, are not consistent with a literal interpretation. But they're communicating through Strong images and metaphors and symbols, great spiritual truths. So why would Revelation 20 suddenly be the one chapter to be taken literally? 
And fourth, Revelation follows a cyclic structure. We've seen that again and again, haven't we? Repeatedly bringing the reader to the return of Christ at the end of each cycle. So chapter 19 ends the cycle of the conquest of Babylon. Remember that covered 17 through 19 with the victorious return of Christ. Chapter 20, just like chapter 12, steps back to consider the whole era. And like all the cycles of the book of Revelation, the beginning of each cycle steps back to the first advent and moves then from the first advent to the second advent in the entire gospel age. Well then, those are the three views of the millennium, and we're going to be interpreting then these 10 verses as we interpreted the rest of the book from an inaugurated millennial perspective. And the text before us tonight splits itself up very naturally into three paragraphs. The first paragraph, one through three, talks about how Satan is bound, four through six, how the saints reign, and seven through 10, what happens when Satan is loosed for a little while at the end of the age. So first then, the binding of Satan. John begins to tell us in verse two that the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, is taken. He's obviously giving us a very full title here of who Satan is. He's described as that old serpent, that ancient serpent, the devil. You see, John has a real pastoral heart. And what he wants to do is he wants to remind them of what they're actually going through and that this is nothing new as they're being persecuted and thrown in prison under the persecution of Nero. The persecution of Satan is as old as the world itself. That's very comforting. Comforting for us still today because there's always that temptation to believe that somehow when you're going through a lot of trials that no one else has gone through the kind of trial you have or no one has gone through it so long or so intensely. And when we're facing opposition, misunderstanding, persecution, affliction, we may be tempted to think that it's not quite happened this way to anyone else. But John says, it has. He's the ancient serpent. So my friend, if you feel harassed by the devil this evening, this past week, this past month, remember there's nothing new in it. Nothing has come upon you that is not common to man, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So don't be so arrogant as to think that you only have suffered what you're suffering. This is an old serpent. This is an ancient enemy. He's used the same tactics for 6,000 or more years. And you know what it's like, young people. You know what it's like to go to college, perhaps, and get professors, and perhaps some of those professors say of your beliefs, well, no, no one believes that kind of thing these days. You don't believe that nonsense, do you? Oh, that all went out without, with, with the ark. There's, there's no, no one who believes in creation anymore. Or other temptations. 
You've got positively antiquarian views, we're told. Well, Satan is an antiquarian serpent, an old serpent, who goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and his temptations are as old as the ones he brought to Eve, the same ones, in essence, he brings to us today. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that our generation is guilty of chronological snobbery. And what he means by that is very interesting. We think that our age is the age that the entire world has been waiting for. We're modern people, so many say. And we finally have everything right. We've got evolution right. We've got all these theories right. We don't need to believe in God. Only, Only a sickly man needs to use God as a crutch. We're independent. We're the final age of having arrived. But there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the devil's been telling every age. From the earliest days of human history, he's been dragon-like in his ferocity and serpent-like in his cunning. He's attacked, he's accused, he sought to destroy the foundations of the church. Now we're told in this opening paragraph of this first vision of the last cycle of visions in Revelation, that this old serpent is taken and bound and thrown into a pit where he's locked away for 1,000 years. And he won't be loosed, except at the end for a little season. How are we to interpret that? Well, boys and girls, I think we've all, you've all visited a zoo at one time or another with your mom and dad, and you've been very glad to see the animals, but you've been very glad to see them behind cages, behind wires, bars. You wouldn't like to visit a zoo, would you, with lions walking around? You know it would be very dangerous. That's what John is saying about Satan here. He's a very dangerous beast, as it were, but he's behind bars. He's bound. He's chained. Of course, you wouldn't want to be inside of a cage with a lion either, would you? In fact, if a lion can get you in his circle, he will destroy you. Good chance. So is Satan. Satan is still alive. Satan is still trying, but Satan is bound, John says. He's behind bars, as it were. It's like a dog. You know, you've seen, you've seen these dogs who, they come charging at you, but there's supposedly electric fence in the, in the ground or something, and, and they can only go so far, and, and they're barking away, but they can't reach you on the sidewalk. But your heart skips a couple beats. This dog is coming after me, but he stops. That's the encouragement John gives to the persecuted church. No matter what happens to you, whether you get thrown in jail, whether you get killed, Satan can only do so much. He's bound. The power he has is curbed. His influence is curtailed. He's been thrown into a bottomless pit. He's still to be feared because he's still... We still have to have a healthy respect of him because he's still out to deceive the nations, but he can't deceive the nations. 
Remember our Lord's great commission to his disciples. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. All authorities given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go. But you say, what about Satan? He's chained. You can go and you'll be safe. Because now the gospel has come. And the gospel has released the nations. You see, in the Old Testament times, only Israel had the truth. All the other nations were lying in darkness. We can't imagine what that is on Pentecost, that the wall of partition broke down between Jews and Gentiles, and now the whole world receives the gospel. And so the message is, go to all the nations. And don't stop. Don't turn back because of the influence of Satan. Picking up on the dog in imagery. I think we've all knocked on the, or rang the doorbell of a home and you're about ready to step in and this huge dog comes charging out at you. But the dog is on the leash. The owner has the dog on the leash. And the owner reassures you. Don't worry. This dog won't bite. I've got, I've got him under control. And you kind of step in a little gingerly and you kind of <laughs> hug the wall. You're know, looking at the dog and he's barking away at you. But He's, he's a few feet away because the owner has him under control. That's what John is saying here. John is saying, Jesus is saying this to us. Don't worry. Go out and evangelize. Go out and bring the gospel to all nations. Satan will have a final fling. He'll be loose for a little season at the end of the day. But right now, go out and bring the gospel to all nations, to every creature. Teach and disciple the nations. And don't worry I've got Satan under control. He doesn't hold sway over the nations anymore. He did at one time. The Gentiles were in pitch darkness, but no more. My kingdom has come. And you see, Christ already was bringing Satan under his control in his earthly ministry. And that's why Christ's own statements are a powerful confirmation of this interpretation of Revelation 20. As a result of his own death, Christ says the prince of this world will be cast out. John 12, 31. Right now already, Jesus says, John 16, 11, he's being judged. Christ came to bind him, Christ himself says, Matthew 12, 29. And to spoil him, that is to defeat him, says Paul, Colossians 2, 15. The author to the Hebrews says, he died to destroy him that had the power of death, Hebrews 2, 14. Now, such absolute language of the, of the absolute conquest of Jesus over Satan does not mean that Satan no longer has any influence, but it does mean that Christ's victory is so complete that the devil cannot stop the Lord Jesus from saving sinners among all the nations. Satan is bound. Even if you pick up your newspaper and it seems like the furthest thing away in the world, the gospel is still going forth in triumph. And you can go to nation, to nation, to nation. And you hear these accounts of people who've been turned to the gospel and been saved. Last week, I stayed by some people in, in South Africa. I asked them how they were converted. They had gone out into the world. They had left the church. 
And they had a brother. He had a brother. It was wonderfully converted. Sovereignly, graciously, powerfully converted under one sermon. And he called up this man where I stayed, his brother, the very next day and said, I need to talk to you. And he came to him and he told him what the Lord had done. And his whole life was new. He was in Christ. Sin was dreadful. Christ was lovely. He was so filled with life and power. His brother didn't know what to make of it. So he talked to his dad. His dad said, Huh, your brother's lost his marbles. You've got to, you've got to save him and bring him back. He's gone crazy. But the brother couldn't believe that. But he didn't know what to make of it, so he wrestled with it. Finally, he said to his brother, okay, I'll go to church with you. He brought his wife with him. And the first sermon, they were both converted, husband and wife, the same sermon. Satan is bound. And their whole lives changed. Now their entire life is seeking to serve the Lord and to hate sin. What a God we have. doesn't matter what country you go to. Everywhere you meet the people of God who speak the same language in different languages. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. What God alone can do, God does. Satan is bound. You see, Christ's victory over Satan is as decisive and complete as if the devil were dead and buried, even though the devil's still very active. So this is the point. When we send out missionaries, when we pray for mission work, when we evangelize in our neighborhood, in our families, in our work setting, in this multicultural, multinational society in which we live, this is what we should expect to find men and women from all backgrounds and all cultures and all nationalities and every tongue coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Satan is bound. His power to deceive the nations is curtailed by the gospel. So that's the first thing we need to consider. We need to conclude from this millennium. Satan is bound. But now, we go on here to look at the reign of the saints in verses 4 through 6. Notice what it says. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God which had not worshipped the beast neither his image neither received his mark upon their foreheads or on their hands. Remember we saw that was uh, all believers then. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now remember, this vision is simultaneous. It's parallel with the vision we've been looking at. The binding of Satan and the reigning of the saints coexist. They stand side by side. But what does it mean? How do the saints reign in this gospel age? And what does it mean, this first resurrection? Well, it seems that the reign of the saints 
is synonymous not only with the first resurrection, but that there's a special role for those who are martyrs. We read that John says in verse 4, he saw the souls of the martyrs. Now that obviously means he gets another peek into heaven, as he has done all throughout this book, and he sees disembodied spirits, he sees souls, their bodies haven't returned yet, so this is the intermediate state, obviously, between death and the final resurrection, and he sees these souls on thrones ruling with Christ. And then he sees that with them are all those who haven't bowed the knee to the mark of the beast and so on. So it's not only the martyrs who receive a special place on those thrones, but it's all believers who've died in the Lord and whose souls have gone to be with the Lord that John sees. So this is a spiritual and a heavenly resurrection. But what does it exactly mean? Well, there are two possibilities. And perhaps in a way, both can be true. The first and the obvious one, which is certainly true, is that John sees here a reference to the intermediate state. What happens to our loved ones who die in the Lord? Well, they're with Christ. But they're not just with Christ, enjoying Christ. They're actually doing the work of Christ. Exactly what that is, we don't know. But they're ruling with authority. They're sitting on thrones with Jesus. They're priests and kings unto God, even in their disembodied spirits. Now, that is extremely comforting. And what an amazing comfort that is to, to the people in John's day. They're seeing their fellow believers around them getting martyred. And John says, don't worry, Satan doesn't get the victory even when they're martyred. But I see their souls going to the right hand of God, serving Christ on thrones, co-reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that message does? For those relatives in the church where John was ministering or the church where his letter would come, those who've lost family members to imperial persecution for being believers, and John is saying, don't be discouraged. Those very believers are now, I see them sitting on thrones in glory with Christ. What an encouragement. It's the same kind of thing that Paul did for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause we faint not, he says, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul says to the Corinthians, you see, even though our outward man perishes, perishes under imperial Rome, it's only a light affliction. It's only a temporary passing from this life to the next. They're reigning in glory, a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. No matter what our afflictions are here, they're small compared to the glory to come. That's the message. The saints reign. Praise God. But there's a second way in which this can be taken up as well. 
the reigning of the saints can also be understood as a present reality here on earth. You don't have to be in another world spiritually to reign with Christ. So it's possible to understand this first resurrection in terms not of death, but in terms of Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection to spiritual life from the dead. Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection in Jesus in spiritual living from the dead. That's what we call regeneration, being born again. Now, how do I get that? Well, listen carefully. In the whole of the New Testament, there's only one resurrection that is of central importance that qualifies as the first resurrection, at least here in this life. And that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He's the first resurrected one. And that is a Savior and his Lord. We saw this morning Lazarus was resurrected temporarily, but Jesus is permanently resurrected. And that resurrection, you see, is of supreme importance because he's the firstborn among many brethren. He's raised from the dead and will be the first fruits that follow him if we're believers. And so, the first resurrection can also refer to Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, which is incorporated into his. We suffer with him, we die with him, we're resurrected with him, says Paul. So the first resurrection of which believers in this life partake of is not a resurrection in ourselves, but in Christ, who then regenerates us so that we're resurrected from spiritual death. And that then becomes our first resurrection. I was just saying to someone in South Africa last week, they were asking me how old I was. I said, well, do you want... Do you want my, my, my age chronologically from when I was born or do you want my age from when I was reborn? Because really the first 14 years of my life, I was dead. And some of the old Scottish divines used to do that. You know, you ask them how old they were, they'd tell you from the time they were born again because they're resurrected from the dead. That's the first resurrection, which is only possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see, in this resurrection, through regeneration, we're united with Christ. So objectively, we're in the loins of Christ, as it were, already by God's eternal sovereign decree from eternity past. And we're included in his resurrection. And so this is the beauty. John says, the second death won't come over these who have been born again. So what you have here is a pattern. Let me give it to you. First of all, you've got, think of it as a chart. You've got the saints here and the wicked here. First John speaks of the saints. First death, that's the physical death. And the wicked, first death, that's their physical death. But then in the second step, John speaks of the first spiritual resurrection. That's a resurrection, in Christ's resurrection, to which we're born again. Parallel with that 
is then the wicked's second spiritual death. Second death, which is a spiritual death. And then thirdly, you have on the side of the saints a second physical resurrection, which is the resurrection then of the body, not of the soul now, but of the body on the great last day. And you have the second physical resurrection of the wicked. They shall be raised in body as well, one to life everlasting and one to eternal separation from God's favor. Now, is there support for this view anywhere else in Scripture? Well, I think there is. I want to just give you one text, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says something very interesting here in verses 2 and 3. He's dealing in the context with why Christians shouldn't be taking each other to court. And he says something very, very interesting. This is what he says. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that you shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Pertain to this life. You see, there's a future and there's a present aspect here. These Christians were falling out with each other, having legal difficulties. They're going to court to settle their affairs. Paul says this is scandalous. Don't you realize that the church shall judge the universe? Don't you realize you're going to sit on thrones with Christ and judge angels? Well, if that's true of you, if that's going to happen, surely you're capable of judging the affairs of this life, of this world. If you're going to reign and judge then, surely you can reign and judge now in the matters of this life and of this existence. You're called now to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus by faith. You're called now to be kings and priests unto God by faith. You're called to reign in this life now. What a glorious thing this is. And how much we live, dear people of God, below our privileges, don't we? Let me give you a little illustration. This story's been told of a young believer named Catherine who was saved, and she made her first attempts at evangelizing and witnessing in her community. And when she returned, her grandfather asked her how it went, and she said, Grandpa, by God's grace, I did my best. And Grandpa said, Catherine, your best is not good enough. In Christ, we do better than our best. It's a profound thought, but you see, that's what happens in this millennium, in this gospel age. Those who are born again from the dead and raised to life are put in positions of influence by their walk and their talk here in this life that overreach themselves. We can excel beyond ourselves. By the grace of Christ, by the resurrection power of Jesus. Many of us have been taught in geography class at school that it's impossible for a river to rise higher than its source. But in Christ, Christians can rise higher than themselves. This is the glory of the Christian life. This is the glory of office bearing in the church of God. Sometimes you know as you visit or sometimes you know as you preach that you've gone above and beyond yourself because the resurrected Christ is helping you and giving you office-bearing grace. And so your achievements rise above your own natural gifts and resources because your life is hid with Christ in God. 
And that's the real source of the Christian life. And so you do better than your best. You reign in this life with Christ. You sit on a throne with Christ in this life by free and sovereign grace. It's not just your future hope, but in principle, already it's your present position. And so by grace and through faith, God has raised us with Christ and set us in heavenly places. And when you understand that and you grasp that and you lay hold of that and by faith you can believe that, you see, then the earthly Lord's Supper brings you to the heavenly. Then the, then the earthly church service brings you into the heavenly worship. Then as you sang 31 stanza 7 this morning, you had a hankering to be with Christ forever because you know already here in principle the joy of reigning with him and communing with him in heavenly places. The saints shall reign. They shall reign in the gospel age. They shall reign in the intermediate state. And their bodies are laying in the ground. They're reigning even now in that intermediate state, says John. But also you, dear believer, John would say, have the principle of that in you, even now, through the first resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By that resurrection, you are resurrected from the dead. And you await now your second resurrection after you die physically, or you will be with Jesus forever. Well, how then is this gospel age to end? Will I go out in a blaze of light and glory? Will I go out sputtering like firewood that is ineffective? John says, neither. He says in verses 7 through 10, there'll be a loosing of Satan. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And then fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have another vision of the loosing of Satan, confirming what we read at the end of verse 3 about Satan's little season. The number of thousand is very large. The little season is very short. At the very end, Satan will be, as it were, loosed from his chain. The dog will be let go of his chain, and he will go about to try to destroy the nations uh, once more. And that's in line with 2 Thessalonians 2, where there's again the binding and the loosing. We're told there that a principle of lawlessness is at work. But the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the final embodiment of evil, the final parody of the Christian gospel, is not yet arrived. We're told he's on a chain, it's restricted, it's curtailed. The gospel must yet be first, first preached to all the nations. Then the Antichrist 
will arrive. Then the man of lawlessness will come, and there'll be a falling away and apostasy. It's exactly what John is saying here as well. And that in turn corresponds to Ezekiel. Chapters 20 and 21, you know of Ezekiel's visions of the spiritual resurrection of Israel and its its unification under David's son, David's king's son in the new covenant. Then we're told in Ezekiel there'll be an attack of an international enemy against God's peaceful people. And the return of God's glory will return. And that attack is summarized also in these previous cycles in Revelation. It's not a literal military battle, but it's an image of warfare that symbolizes persecution against the church. The church will undergo a very heavy sifting time, a time of struggle, a time when she's surrounded by enemies, John says, from four quarters of the earth, from all the nations. The church will be overwhelmed by the number of her enemies. They shall be like the sand of the sea threatening to extinguish her, to extinguish God's promises. But then suddenly, in the darkest hour, verse 9, God shall come, Christ shall return, supernatural judgment shall be poured out, and it will save the church and destroy the enemies to the glory of God. And then, the end of the text The wicked rulers, the false teachers, the beast and the false prophets will be damned to hell together with Satan, the dragon, and will be condemned to everlasting pain. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, that's a summary of the last verses. Let Let me close this sermon by giving you three applications from this. Three things I want to say. First is this. What we have in this last vision is a picture of the church at the end of the age. And the church is described here, you notice in verse 9, as the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And we're going to hear a lot more about the beloved city, the new Jerusalem, in the last few chapters. But we need to hold on to this. The church is a camp. A camp of the saints about and the beloved city. You know what that means? That means there's no room for defeatism. Nor, on the other hand, for triumphalism in our attitude to things. There's a balance here. In this world, we have no continuing city. In this world, we're like an army, like a camp. The camp is fragile and vulnerable. That's how the church is in the world. That's how it will be at the end of the age. And yet at the same time, that same church, that same camp of the saints is an indestructible city, a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so you have here a solid camp, a solid city, the beloved city, surrounded by Gog and Magog, which are symbols Not of Russia or Japan or China or any other nation, but symbols of the powers of evil that will come, satanic powers, to destroy the church in the end times. Satan's going to muster all his troops and all his resources. He's going to besiege the church 
Not as World War III, not as the Holocaust, not as any of the things that so many wrongly interpret this chapter to be. But this is simply, as John says, Satan's last stand. It's his final fling. At the end of time, after the gospel has reached to the ends of the earth, and myriads of people have been saved from every culture, tribe, and tongue, at the very end, Satan will be loosed, and he will release all his power and all his activity and all his propaganda and all his lies and all his deceit and all his temptations to besiege the church. And even then, the church shall not fail because Christ shall come to her rescue and Christ shall send fire, fire down from heaven, as it were. He will consume, devour, the text says, verse 9, the devil and the false prophets, the false teachers, the wicked who line up with Satan And he shall cast them into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And so all three, Satan, his minions, and unbelievers, they shall be cast together into the land of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that leads me to this conclusion. My dear friend, the day is coming. The day is coming sooner than you think. Where Satan and the great beast of the sea and the great beast of the earth that we saw back in chapter 13, together with all unbelievers, will be destroyed. Babylon the great will be destroyed. Satan will be destroyed. And if you... Continue on his side, you will be destroyed as well. Satan will be the loser, though he'll be loosed for a little season. The one who seeks to destroy the male child shall himself be destroyed. Satan fought a war in heaven, and he lost and was cast out. Satan fought a war on earth. And he will lose. He is losing. He's bound now already, and he'll be cast out. He'll be kept in the abyss, and he will be dispatched to his final destiny by being cast into the lake of fire. And so, this infamous trio Satan, the beast, the false prophet, together with all his followers, will be tormented day and night forever. And ever. Day and night also occurs in the throne room where the four living creatures sing praises to God day and night without ceasing. Chapter 4 says. So here you have this tremendous contrast of parallelism all throughout the book of Revelation. Forever and forever and forever in the lake of fire. Forever, forever and forever. And a glorious bliss where no sun is needed because the Lamb is the light thereof. And the next chapter we'll see, or later in this chapter, that all those whose names are not recorded in the book of life will go to be eternally with Satan and the two beasts. And that suffering 
will never come to an end. Depart from me. You are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. The torment will be spiritual and mental agony with no relief. No relief. This is the second death. The first death is you die spiritually. You're never born again. First death is your physical death. The second death, you will die forever in hell. Ever dying and yet never dead. Ever separated from God in his favor and yet never fully dead. Alive enough to be dying continually. What a terrible place hell will be. And the tragedy, the tragedy is you don't need to go there. And yet you do, because you refuse to believe in the Son of God and have life in his name. Refuse to repent of your sins and you go your own way to everlasting destruction. Oh, how dreadful it will be to meet people from this congregation on the wrong side of Christ in the great day. My friend, I call out to you once more this day. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Repent and turn from your ways. Turn to this glorious Savior, this great God-man Savior we heard of this morning. And surrender to him and cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Keep me from the tormenting flames of Satan and his minions and bring me to sit with thrones on thrones with Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Great God of heaven, what a Savior thou art, but also what consequences there shall be when we do not respond by grace to such overtures of grace. Oh, how dreadful it shall be to be cast out in that day, having heard the gospel all our lifetime. Lord, we thank thee that Satan will be defeated, but we pray, don't let any of those among us take his side and go through life casting in their lot with the archenemy of God. Oh, graciously convert. Give the first resurrection that we may be born again and come to genuine faith and repentance. Lord, work valiantly among us, we pray so that we may all be ready to meet thee around the great white throne of the Lamb, of which we shall hear next time. Have mercy upon us, and bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.